0: Hi everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 16 of Yoga Land. My guest today is Catherine Priori. Catherine is the founder of Headstand, a nonprofit organization in the San Francisco Bay Area that offers yoga and mindfulness programs to kids who attend low-income schools. One of the reasons I started Yogaland was to highlight and provide a platform for people who are integrating yogic practices into modern life. I know that there are a lot of yoga teaching programs out there in schools, and I can think of no better way to bring yoga into our culture than to start with young kids. So if you're out there on the front lines teaching yoga to kids, I want to thank you and I applaud you. I've known Catherine for a long time, and just recently she asked me to start helping on Headstands Board, so I'm thrilled to be able to start doing that soon. There are a few things that make Headstand unique. The first is that the yoga classes are part of the curriculum. So these are not after-school programs or just one-off units. These are 40-week programs that are in accordance with the school's curriculum. The other thing I love about Headstand is that the mental and emotional techniques are emphasized as much as the physical in a very systematic, organized way. And I asked Catherine about that in our interview, so she'll explain that more. Headstand works with kids in economically underserved communities. So, kids who are faced with challenging circumstances and toxic stress every day and who really need tools to cope with those circumstances. This interview with Catherine left me so hopeful. She's such a thoughtful person, she's a skillful educator, and she understands that she's bringing potentially very profound transformation to kids who need it the most. So, I hope you enjoy listening to it. I'm sure you'll be as inspired as I am. So part of Headstand's mission is to help children in economically underserved communities combat the stress that goes with that life. So what kinds of stress do you see the children going through at your schools?
1: Well, toxic stress is a response that occurs when a child experiences strong, frequent, or prolonged adversity. That could be anything like physical or emotional abuse, chronic neglect, caregiver substance abuse, mental illness, exposure to violence, and oftentimes just the accumulated burdens of family economic hardship without adequate adult support. So we see children in our schools who are food insecure, they're sleep deprived, and often it results in an inability to uncover their own Innate resilience, their confidence, and their personal strength.
0: Like on a very, very basic level, it must make it very hard for them to
1: learn. Exactly. It really interferes with the foundation learning. We believe that all children deserve the chance to learn and to negotiate a life rich with choices. But for so many of our kids living in poverty, external factors trigger a state of fight or flight. And we see that that state is semi-permanent. You know, it's not solidified in our students, but they are temporarily unable to focus on anything else when suffering from toxic stress in many cases.
0: So do you feel that by kind of, you know, introducing kids to yoga and which has this benefit of of stimulating the relaxation response. Do you feel like by introducing it to people at this young age, that's age of being a child, that they have more of a chance of uncovering what you refer to as that innate resilience, that innate human resilience. Do you see that happening?
1: Absolutely. Over and over again, you know, uh, in addition to the academic skills that they're taught in our schools, we, we believe that students can and will develop skills early on in life to help them process, And regulate complex emotions and to manage persistent stress.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Do you have any information about how this kind of trauma and toxic stress affects like brain development? Or can you describe kind of what you see when kids first start the yoga classes in terms of their behavior, how that might play out? Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, I would point everyone in the direction of local woman in the bay area named Nadine Burke Harris. She's a brilliant pediatrician doing ground breaking work in Bayview Hunters Point on toxic stress and she has an incredible TED talk if you. Oh great. Her work, she's very inspiring and I think a global leader in working with children's to combat toxic stress but You know, on a specific headstand level, when we encounter students in our classes, the way that might play out in everyday life in school is just an inability to focus, fidgety, sometimes perhaps defiant behavior coming towards a teacher or peers. And I think an incredibly important part of the job of teaching mindfulness and yoga in schools is for teachers to know how to self-regulate and to manage behavior and to see behavior as communication. Hmm. So communication and, you know, as much as possible respond to that communication without judgment. Oh my gosh. I need to do that with my own daughter. (laughs) I'm
0: totally serious.
1: I totally empathize Uh, with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so can you talk a little bit more about that? So are you saying that like, because children don't necessarily have the um, vocabulary to communicate their, or even like the ability to identify what they're going through emotionally, that it plays out in their behavior, and you have to kind of read that.
1: I every day, every minute. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's crucial to the success of our own program, and I think it's crucial to the success of learning in general cross the board, K to twelve. You know, oftentimes we are asking our kids to behave in a certain way. And if they behave this way, then they're good and they are perceived as learning. What we don't often make space for is to take a deep breath ourselves, witness this behavior and respond with compassion. Respond in a way that says, okay, there there must be something happening for you today.
0: Right. So when you talk about self-regulation, you are actually referring to, like, your yoga teachers have to be good at self-regulation before they walk into the room to teach. Yes. yes. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) At first,
1: I thought you were referring to the kids' self-regulation, but no, you're, I mean, that's, yeah, it's important. We work primarily with low-income schools and with teachers who are engaged in these schools. We provide, you know, full-time teacher on site. But... Compassion fatigue and burnout right now in the profession of teaching are at an all time high, especially in low income schools. Teacher turnover rate in the US is astronomical. 40 to 50% of teachers leave the profession within five years, and it's costing us a great deal of money too. Turnover also exacerbates the problems of poverty. Because it's listed as one of the five risk factors for toxic stress in kids growing up in communities we serve. So there's a vicious cycle that exists. And we're looking as an organization right now in the Bay Area, how do we help our own teachers manage to deliver these programs in a way where they feel steady and supported and confident?
0: Yeah. So do you have like regular professional development for your yoga teachers? I know that your yoga teachers, I mean, I'm, I'm going to mention this in the intro to the podcast, but your yoga teachers, the yoga and mindfulness program that Headstand provides is a part of the school curriculum. So do they feel like they are part of the school and part of Headstand? Like, do they get support from both sides or is it, do you,
1: yeah. We make a concerted effort to provide support uh, from both sides. And I think one aspect of our organization that makes us unique is that our teachers delivering the Headstand program are trained in K-12. to They've been academic teachers for several years and they've been trained in mindfulness and yoga. When you started Headstand, what made you decide to have that
0: unique combination? I think that's less common that someone would have the training as a classroom teacher and a yoga teacher? How did you know that you wanted that combination?
1: Yeah, I wanted that combination because I am entirely focused on serving low-income communities. I think that we've made great strides in closing the K-12 opportunity gap, but there's a massive amount of work still to be done, and we have to do better for our kids. So many people are looking at, okay, how can we continue to drive home this and narrow this gap? But the reality is that the playing field is not level. And I was primarily interested in providing a program that would be set up for success in the delivery of the curriculum with sort of the lofty goal of looking at what happens when yoga and mindfulness are... Integrated as a new content area into a K 12 school so that the class is mandatory. And in my mind, having been trained as a classroom teacher, I felt that what would be really compelling was someone who had the management skills and the empathy and ability to run a classroom partnership with someone who was a committed yogi and meditator. Yeah, I bet that's a hard combo to find. Happily, I'm happy to report that it's becoming less difficult to fight. <laughs> yes, yeah, this is really a movement that's starting to catch on. And there's so many teachers who have been profoundly impacted by the practice of yoga and mindfulness that this becomes something of a dream job to pass on these strategies in a way that's both intelligent and compassionate.
0: Yeah, as more people go through teacher trainings, I guess you have you know, such a larger pool of exactly people who have both of those skill sets. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I love that headstand, you know, doesn't just teach the poses. You, you also teach mindfulness and character development and isn't and it's all like, you've shown me your curriculum before, and I've, I've been to some classes and it seems like it's all very planned and it's all very integrated. Like the, the the sequence that you'll be doing that day will be related to whatever key concept is being introduced. So can you walk me through an example of how you introduce a mindful mindfulness and like maybe a common topic that you introduce to the kids?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, I think that one of the ways to deliver character lessons is really experiential. So that The practice of mindfulness and asana are perfect containers for discovering one's own character. It gives space and time to reflect and, like I said earlier, build that resilience that's so crucial to defining our character. So, for example, one lesson might focus on the idea of perseverance and grit, But we might introduce that. I've introduced this concept of five minutes drama-free. We're going to take five minutes drama-free right now. And what happens when we take these five minutes? So if we're doing that via meditation, we guide the students through five minutes drama-free. And within the context of that meditation, we might gently suggest, like, wow, this actually takes a lot of perseverance to commit to these five minutes. This trauma keeps surfacing, you know, and what's interesting is what's behind that trauma. What is the feeling, you know, and that in fact, this also takes an incredible amount of courage and curiosity to look at. So here are character concepts, curiosity and perseverance, just contained within a five minute meditation in the delivery of the instruction. And to expand on that, we would have the students also then do a journal reflection on those, those concepts on perseverance on what does it take to really commit to five minutes drama free? How curious do you have to be?
0: You know, I, I like find myself wishing that our generation had this kind of education when we were growing up. I don't think I just don't feel like it was there that the encouraging self-reflection was there. And maybe that's why our generation is so into yoga. Yeah. <laughs> so do you find yourself kind of marveling at the things that kids come up with, you know, when they do these exercises? Is it, because kids are so
1: intuitive. I'm constantly in awe uh, and, and the utmost respect of our kids. They, they truly are intuitive. I had a group of fifth graders early on that I was teaching and it was what I considered to be sort of a magical classroom. We just had this connection and they were eager to engage with yoga in a way that some of my other seventh grade classes were not. So it was nice to have that during my school day. And early on, I asked the kids to describe after rest pose. That's what we call Shavasana. How are you feeling in this moment? And just describe it with one word. And I had a young boy waving his hand incessantly and called on him. He begged me, could he please use more than one word? So I agreed. And he said, you know, I feel like a newborn baby. And the entire class shook their hands, which was the symbol of agreement in this school. And I thought, wow, like that's actually the direct translation of. That's amazing. And in Shavasana, you know, you're kind of reborn. This, You're a newborn baby. You're fresh.
0: That is amazing. Yeah. That's like the science of yoga
1: right there. Right. Right. So wonderful to witness and such a privilege to see kids undergo transformation within a space of 30 minutes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think for most humans, I mean, you know, for most adults, the doorway in like the pathway into yoga is through the physical practice. Do you find that the same holds true for kids that like they take to the physical first? Or do you find that because you're working with kids who have potentially very stressful lives and situations, and they need like emotional support? Do you find that they take to the self reflective and mindfulness aspects just as well as the asana?
1: Yeah, I think that it's it varies by student, but it's across the board to generalize. Yes, I think most kids actually respond to the physical practice, which then shifts them into a state where they can sustain being still, just like just like most adults,
0: yeah. schools are, you know, they're they're very results-oriented schools. Like, they have lots of goals and and statistics. Do you have any um, statistics along those lines or anecdotes overall about how Headstand has helped
1: students over the past eight years? We do. Yeah, we have some exciting research happening now, um, and we have statistics from years past and most previously last year with. of our students reporting significantly less perceived stress. Wow. 84% reporting frequent use of stress reduction techniques taught to them in the headstand class. And a new pathway that has evolved for us is working with teachers and providing mindfulness and yoga strategies for teachers not only to use for themselves, but in the classroom with their students. Sure. And yeah. 100% of staff surveyed highly recommend the stand program. That's a statistic we're really very proud
0: of. That's awesome, Catherine, that you should be really proud of that. That's great. And so can you call to mind any students who have given you an example of how some of the stress reduction techniques or things that they learn in the classroom helped them outside of the classroom, like helped them navigate their neighborhood or their family
1: life or whatever stressful thing they have to go through. We do. We have many stories like that. One particular student is an alumni at this point. She's currently a junior at Stanford and she was in the program in the early phases, she had yoga and meditation for three years through her kids' school, and uh, she was diagnosed with scoliosis in the midst of her headstand programming. She actually was very skeptical of yoga in the beginning, uh, but is also a student who. I was able to quickly shift that skepticism into commitment once she realized how well the practice was working for her. It was alleviating her anxiety and it was helping her feel better physically. And in fact, the doctor said that her yoga actually cured her scoliosis over time. Wow. She ended up writing her college entrance essay on the practice of yoga And the effect it had taken on her own personal life. Um, And really is a student who uh, has overcome challenges and also an example of a student who took the practice, made it her own, and used it for personal empowerment in a way that I think would be the ultimate goal. Yeah. You know, you're exposed to these practices and then you make them. Your own and use that yoga in your everyday life. Uh, another smaller example is a student journal entry that I remember once. And this student was just suffering from some emotional problems in school and acting out and had recently immigrated to this country. And his journal entry said, Today in yoga, I discovered things about myself that I never knew. That response has always stuck with me because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really part of the goal, too, is just to have moments in time in this digital age, in an age, you know, particularly in a KIPP site where there is a strong emphasis on academic achievement and social and emotional learning now to have that time for solitude and allow what's true in our lives to surface.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just like that ability to get to know yourself. That's right. That's- it seems kind of strange to say it because it seems like it should be just a natural human progression, right? That we get to know ourselves. But when you're in a stressful environment for a lot of your days, it's, it's probably, I mean, I would imagine that a lot of your... Being is focused on coping and survival.
1: That's right. When you live in a two-bedroom apartment with 19 people, like some of our students do, there's just a, a, an environmental limitation yeah. on the of, I think, mental and physical space that you can have to self-explore. Right, right.
0: That ability to know yourself. I mean, I just, I think it's just got to be one of the biggest gifts of yoga. Because, you know, if you know yourself, you can make choices that work for you as you move through the world, like no matter who you are, no matter what age you are.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's very true. And I think the more we discover who we are, that in turn enables us to allow other people to be who they are. And I think that's what creates a real shift in a cultural community, a school community, when exposed to these practices.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about the school community being affected as well. I was sort of thinking it on a more individual level. But so you see that you are probably not just helping students. Um, Relate to themselves, but relate to each other. Do you see like more positive reactions, or does the school administration (laughs) kind of (laughs) report to you that they're happy with? That's
1: exactly right. That's exactly right. I think um, because our teachers are part of the school's year round curriculum and we're providing students with these classes in a dedicated and committed way, uh, we help orient whole school communities toward a culture of compassion and well-being.
0: Oh, that's so great. That's awesome. I have a couple of like quick logistical questions for people out there who might be teaching yoga to kids or thinking, considering it. How long are the headstand classes? Like how long do you recommend a yoga class be for a kid? And I know you have a large age range, but if you can generalize.
1: Yeah, for lower school grades, I'd say pre-K, to well, pre K, I would suggest shorter snippets, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And then once we're hitting K to four, we try to look at a 30 minute class. That seems to be a great time mm-hmm. amount for lower school. And then moving into middle school, I think you can then amp up the frequency and the dosage uh, to 50 to 60 minutes. Another suggestion that I like to make in schools uh, overall is that then expand on those class times and offer additional minutes inside the academic classroom. So all kids can handle, you know, two to three minutes of mindfulness before we start this activity.
0: And that's probably a great way to transition from being outdoors, I would imagine, <laughs> to coming indoors that's and having the to
1: sex. the and most frequent uses, of, <laughs> I, I would say, inside school. From recess into the classroom or lunch or, you know, PE, high level activities. Right. It's really quite effective. Yeah,
0: it's hard to make those transitions. And then... I would imagine that when your teachers start the new class, like at the beginning of a year, that, you know, it takes a while for the kids to get accustomed to yoga and the classroom culture and everything. Yeah. So if someone's just trying to start a yoga program somewhere, you know, how long should they hang in there? You know, I mean, what's kind of like an average time until you start to see things come around?
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, I, we're on eight years. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think as long as you possibly can, find the support to hang in there and collaborate with teachers on site, the academic teachers and administrators to whatever extent possible. In a nutshell, I always say the first three months really are critical and crucial. That's when, as a teacher, you have to be very organized, establish routines and systems. Build relationships first and foremost with your kids, mm-hmm. and uh, you'll see that pay off real yeah. well within uh, within about three months.
0: Uh huh. Okay, yeah. that's yeah. fair. That's fair. Yeah. That's like the the length of time that your baby is an infant. <laughs> you get right. through those first three months, and you're like, woo! A that's
1: a great a correlation. I never <laughs> thought of that
0: way. Yeah. And then you Headstand is, in some schools, it's K-8. In some schools, it's middle school. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So do you feel like the younger kids start, the better? Or do you feel like um, there is sort of a a sweet spot, like a,
1: a great age for kids to start learning yoga? I do think the younger, the better, kind of in step with most interventions, you know. Even to the point of if you're... Pregnant and doing prenatal yoga. Oh wow, know, that's going to impact that child's development.
0: That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. How has this job changed you and your worldview?
1: In so many ways. Uh, I think it's made me a more optimistic person, despite the complex and intricate issues we encounter in marrying the content area of yoga and meditation to K-12 and vice versa, you know, blending these practices into this environment is a large undertaking. But really, when I see my students overcoming such incredible odds, learning to resource themselves, learning how to discover their own innate gifts and talents and really inner beauty, it's so inspiring. And that really fuels me. It keeps me going. I'm constantly stunned by admiration and respect for our students. And that builds a lot more, um, I think, resilience in me and optimism and courage to keep moving and keep integrating these practices inside more schools and offering the practice to more students.
0: Yeah, that's that's so great to hear that it makes that you feel more optimistic. I mean, I would, you know, I I'm sure you've come across a lot of really difficult situations with kids, and that that has got to be heartbreaking sometimes. But it sounds like you can see that you're making a difference, which is just huge.
1: Yeah, I see, I see that, and I think another aspect of the program that builds my own optimism is to see our headstand teachers taking that on and making it their own and then making more impact and refining, refining the practices and getting better. That's what's exciting for me. I mean, we've certainly had moments of failure and, you know, darkness, Mm. even an organization, you know, you, you fall on your face and you pick yourself up and you try again. And I think that, um, that really helps. Steer the integration of these practices in a more meaningful way. Yeah. What are your hopes for Headstand in the future? Well, my hope is that we can reach more students always. So that is the ultimate goal. And I know there are a lot of other organizations out there doing incredible work too. And so I think we're getting to a critical mass where we're applying these strategies in schools And the dosage is getting higher and more research is getting done. Uh, What I would love to see is for this to move into a policy level. That's where I think we can, you know, maybe in the next 20 years, really start to have a mandate to teach social and emotional learning, to teach mindfulness, to teach yoga, to, you know, just have a more normalized integration of these practices that we know change the brain create more holistic communities and schools and empower our students.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And it would give all of us a better future. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. I feel like I learned so much today and I'm so grateful for you and all the work that you do.
1: Thank you, Andrea. We're so appreciative of your support.
0: Thanks so much for listening, everyone. To learn more about Headstand, you can go to headstand.org. Or you can follow them on Facebook or on Instagram at Headstand Schools. A few years ago, I wrote a feature story about Headstand for Yoga Journal. So I will also put a link to that on our show notes page if you want to learn more about their organization. And show notes this week will be at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 16. Have a great week, everyone. Enjoy your practice.